we realized that in order to support contemporary art, you've got to have the most incredibly diverse methods of, of revenue. And we wanted to make sure that we could pay artists a stipend to do an exhibition while at the same time trying to sell the work. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with visual artists Leiden Rodriguez-Casanova and Francis Trombley, who are the co-founders and co-directors of Dimensions Variable, a nonprofit gallery in Miami, Florida. Back in 2009, while expecting their first child, Leiden and Francis had an idea. They had published a couple issues of their visuals-only blog titled Dimensions Variable. This blog was where they could showcase the kind of challenging art they rarely saw supported or valued in the glitzy art world of Miami. Their idea was to create an actual space, a physical Dimensions Variable, where they could not only showcase, but also support the work of their colleagues that they thought deserved care and attention. They were lucky enough to secure a donated space in Miami's design district. Leiden and Francis worked in their personal studios in the back, and in the small front space, Dimensions Variable started curating exhibits. Years before, Leiden had co-directed another Miami art space called Box, and he wanted to run Dimensions Variable with the same ethos. Dimensions Variable would support great art and artists without placing the demands of the market ahead of the artist's needs or aspirations. Since its founding, Dimensions Variable has had to relocate several times for reasons beyond their control due to the increasingly treacherous real estate market in Miami. Since 2019, though, they have operated out of their largest space yet, comprising 4,500 square feet in Miami's Little River, Little Haiti neighborhood. The same year, they also registered as a nonprofit organization. Since then, they have continued to support a wide range of artists with residencies, exhibits, and since DV is also a gallery, sales, of course. I started by asking Francis and Leiden to explain what particular needs in 2009 Miami's art scene they were hoping to address through their new venture. Francis starts us off. What was going on in 2009, like for us, and even like prior to that, we would be out and about looking at works within our community. And I guess we always felt like we wanted something more. We would go you know, visit other communities. And we were craving to see work that we were interested in. And what was very much like relevant here was a lot of like, we were always seeing a lot of colorful works were mostly paintings, or they were sparkly, or (laughs) it was market driven. Which is not surprising to me, because I only I really I know the Miami art market through what I read about Art Basel, there's so much money to be made there. So I understand that the market has such an outsized importance there. So you were trying to create a venue for some for artists who were living in the community who didn't necessarily fit that mold? Exactly. 
Exactly. I mean, it had started, I mean, we didn't have any money. There was no, there was basically, we have this space. Uh, We ended up later on kind of partnering with an organization here and there to help us uh, support artists from out of town. But for the most part, it was local. It was works that were not so market friendly, but that were inspiring to us. And were you also creating, I have to talk about money, uh, creating a stream of income for yourself and your new family? Was this a new way of adapting to your growing situation? Uh, not yes. so much. I mean, Francis says oh, yes, saying but no. yeah. we, well, you know, I mean, I mean, we were, I don't know how you were, you're saying yes to that question because really for the first couple of years, the invitations were just, you know, inviting, um, you know, artists to come to Miami and we would be able to potentially work with local institutions and be able to get them into a residency or certain things of that nature. And a lot of artists oftentimes were were, were very interested in just coming to Miami and working on a project. And I, don't, I think it was two years until we, two or three years until we, we got some funding. Wow. So it was really, it was just opening up the doors as a pure act of generosity. Just because you happen to get a donated space. Yeah, I mean, we had we had a space and we wanted to share it. And it was just like, do you want to come to Miami and work on a project? We don't have any money. <laughs> when we agreed just to do this, Layden was very firm. He was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And that's what he said this whole time. And what did that mean, Layden? What, what did doing it right mean? You know, a lot of artist projects have this reputation of, you know, there's this uh, temporary nature in which everybody expects them to just kind of be around for a little bit. And then, you know, oh, you know, artists aren't, you know, business isn't their forte. So, of course, it was going to close down. And so we were I was just kind of like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to, you know, do it seriously. And unlike Box, Box was very like hyper independent. And so we paid for everything that had to do with the rent and the projects there out of our own pockets because we didn't want any kind of outside influence, whether it was building a board or or applying for grants and becoming a 501c3 and any of these things. We wanted to just have absolute control. But in this case, I was like, we're gonna, I want to do it for real and I'm not going to pay for it. <laughs> So it was like, we need to kind of make sure that we begin to set up the mechanisms for this to to become more serious over time. And so how long would you say it took for you to set up those mechanisms? Francis 2011, right? That the night grant came in? Yeah. What we, are you asking uh, me? We were approached by uh, Dennis Scholl, who, who we knew and, you know, we had a relationship with him and he had just taken on a role at, at night to be... Uh, the Night Arts Challenge cultural director. He was out there looking at what was what was going on in the city and what needed to potentially have funding. And so he came to some of our events and, and said, you guys should apply. Can one of you describe within those first two years, like a project that you felt particularly passionate about that you know couldn't have really come about without DV support? I think you know, Francis, which one? I mean, Catalina Jaramillo is uh, a special exhibition for me. Is that the one you're talking about, Leiden? Yeah, yeah. How was it special? 
Well, as we were, you know, trying to, I guess, figure out our way with this space and the and the projects, I was getting uh, friends would, you know, they were like, "Hey, I I'd love to put together an exhibition," and I'm I would always be like, "Yep, yeah, just send me a little paragraph or something." And um, a friend of mine, her name is Catalina, and she sent me this proposal. And we we read it, and it was um, her her mother had passed away recently, and she wanted to do this project about her mom dying. But you know, you know, she's like in my studio chatting with me about how this would be such a meaningful thing for her. She sent me all these beautiful emails and a little drawing of the concept of the show, and I was like. Well, Layden, we have to like we have to give her the opportunity to have this exhibition, so she can go through this process. And he and I were kind of like butting heads a little bit because he was like, "Oh my God!" Like she's going to talk about like death and dying, and you know, we were really young. It's just kind of an intense subject, mm-hmm. like, and it could very easily go in a direction that could be possibly very literal. Or something, or sentimental, that was very, or, yes, right. or heavy, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be. I, I mean, I can't even explain it. It, 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 it was such a like. But anyway, like we went back and forth, and I'm like, Lena, that's it. I'm giving her this exhibition. We're doing this, and like we agreed. Anyway, the concept of the show is called "You Are Always Here," and um, it was in 2011. Um, her mother was an avid like collector of objects, uh, almost to the point of like maybe a little bit compulsive. So she so she had all of her mother's things. She took all of these objects and she placed them all around the perimeter of the gallery. And this is like a small rectangular gallery that is like four hundred square feet ish maybe I don't remember the square footage but it was small you know and so she had this uh, maybe foot in depth and very carefully went through all of her mother's things from puzzles to hairbrushes to purses and she just placed them all around this so she had this beautiful like lay like all in the perimeter and um, at the end of the exhibition she had an event where she gave all of those objects that were her mother's away into the community. Oh. So it was very touching and, yeah, a, li- a little sentimental, but visually very elegant and a, a very special, special exhibition. And to this day, I still have her mother's hairbrushes in my bathroom. Oh, you got all the hairbrushes. I have her hairbrushes. Yeah. You are your partners in more ways than one. How I, I how do you deal with disagreements in the business? Oh. Because <laughs> clearly I'm just I'm asking this because clearly there was a disagreement right there about Catalina's piece. Yeah, I mean, we for the most part have a, a aesthetically a similar sensibility. You know, it's gotten more complex as the space has grown and there are things that we're navigating we're learning as we build right 
So the arguments come from, or any sort of disagreements come from us not really being familiar. I mean, I might be unfamiliar with how to run a nonprofit, right? All of this has been like a learning curve for us both. Well, let's talk about that. What made you decide? So clearly you're doing something right because you've been around now for how long? 14, 15 years almost. Fourteen, um, yeah. Fourteen, but you didn't officially become a nonprofit until 2019. What went into that decision? Because running a nonprofit, as you hinted, is its own ball of wax. So, why why incorporate as a 501c3? We started to realize that it was more difficult for us through a fiscal agent to get grants. I think that that was a big thing, right, Leiden? Yeah, I mean, we funding. were we could only access so many. F- funds so many grants that did not require, I mean, we could get a fiscal agency and so on and so forth, but, but we just wanted to, I think one of them was like the Warhol, for example, like you needed to be your own uh, nonprofit. And so I think part of that was like, well, if we're going to focus on a Warhol, eventually we need to eventually do this. And we began to look at like, well, how do we, because we were always about thinking, how can we best structure this? And how do we not necessarily follow what is expected of us to follow? Like, okay, you need to be a nonprofit because you're this artist-run space, or, oh, you need to be a gallery, or you need to be... And so we were kind of looking at at everything, thinking, well, can we create some kind of hybrid that isn't necessarily one or the other? And how do we navigate all of these potential uh, opportunities? And through all of this thinking about all these structures, we ended up as a nonprofit because it seemed to make the most sense because we wanted to make sure that we were able to support a program that remained independent of a market, even though we still wanted to embrace the market and wanted to, if we could place work and and, and make sales for artists, great. But we didn't want that to be the sole So so what you're referring to, and you said kind of a hybrid model in that you're a nonprofit, you offer support to artists, but you also operate as a gallery? Exactly. I see. So we wanted to to function, you know, sort of in between as a hybrid because we, we realized that in order to support contemporary art, you've got to have the most incredibly diverse methods of, of revenue. And we wanted to make sure that we could pay artists a stipend to do an exhibition while at the same time trying to sell the work. God, I love that. That sounds so revolutionary to me for an artist to get paid for her exhibition while also trying to sell her work. I mean, and the, uh, I mean, the dream, right? That's That's amazing. That's, that's, yeah, that's the dream. I mean, but we learned because I'll tell you, I was in my thirties. I'm a generally pretty well-educated guy. I was in my thirties before I learned that, that galleries generally keep 50% of an artist's uh, sale, which astonished me. So what you're proposing sounds so different. Yeah. I mean, and we had learned from our own experiences you know, we, we were working with emerging galleries because we were also emerging artists. And I remember working on a solo show going into debt. Uh, I think it was one of the shows that I did. I went, I went, I think it was $10,000 in debt making this show. And Making the uh, show at a gallery, you mean? 
Yeah, yeah. out of gallery. Right. You know, and of course you're you're already in this debt and you're hoping, okay, I hope that something sells. And oftentimes the kind of work that we were interested in making was challenging work. And so the potential of a sale would have to be, you know, an institutional sale or a collector that that really, you know, had the capability to house a, a, a work or, or a visionary collector that really was interested in the kind of stuff that we were looking at. And so it was really difficult to make that work. So I think all those lessons learned was why we kind of were like, okay, we have to kind of try to figure this out. We were also, we were also in a new economy too. Technology was like affecting so many industries and making so many changes. So we had musicians that were like changing the way that they funded their albums. And we had, you know, entire industries being completely turned upside down. And so it was like, why isn't anyone in the arts thinking more and more about how do we change the finances of it? How do we change the the way that that it works? And if somebody wanted to copy your model or use it as an inspiration wherever they whatever community they were living in, given the many lessons you've learned, what are the a couple of the most crucial ones? I you know, I think the the move to becoming a nonprofit might have been something that we would have done earlier. I think in certain conversations, there were voices who were advising us that, well, maybe you don't need to do that because you guys are artists and you need to focus on your work. And also when you incorporate as a nonprofit, you do lose some control, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you do. And so, and, and so that was something that we navigated for a little while, but I think, um, I think it can open up, you know, a lot of doors because the way that we always looked at it was not that we were getting into this to be this profitable business. We were getting into this as a service to art and artists. Right. If that, you know, if that meant that we were paying ourselves a modest salary, you know, I mean, there's no reason why someone working in nonprofit can't make a decent or or a good living. Right. Well, but so I I'm, think that Yeah. No, I was going to say so one of those, you know, pitfalls or one of those mistakes early on is that we wanted that give back, but we hadn't really or at least until recently been looking at the nonprofit as an actual business for it to make money. Because the only way for us to actually give back is to actually have, to have, to have this, the funding. So it needs to be a business. And originally when we were starting, we didn't have the understanding of that mindset. So you were not incorporating your own financial needs in the picture? No. Right. No. Which is very common, right? Which which is a, a mistake. Yes. Well, I would, for these years. I, would, but, I would interject and say that the the financial compensation or the compensation that we always made sure that was in the project was that our studios were always a part of the project. Oh, okay. And so we were we've been invited before into spaces that would be donated to us, but there wasn't enough room for our studios. 
And so we we would decline because the way that we had structured it early on was that our compensation was that our studios were there. So in a sense, we were getting compensated by other means through right. the use of the space, but also we were getting compensated by the relationships, the exposure, the people that were coming through, the people we were meeting. So that was always worked into uh, the project. But recently, we've gone beyond that, where you, uh, you know you kind of hit you hit a threshold where you're like, well, we're putting so much time into the project at this point that that model of compensation of space and exposure only goes to a point before you have to cap the amount of time that you're putting into the project. Because the more complex it gets, the more you have to. And so now is when we've been working into the project where we have to begin to look at financial compensation as well, because everyone has bills to pay and everyone has to be paid for their time. And we're not only paying artists, but we have to pay a team of, of, of people to make sure that the project continues. So that's an important component now. And particularly when you begin to plan the future of the project, because if you don't have compensation for a team in place, you can't at a future date decide that you're going to bring in a new director or bring in someone if those things are not in place. And finally, I'd love to know, as you look at ahead at 2024, what's, what's happening at Dimensions Variable that you're particularly looking forward to? Francis? <laughs> <laughs> are you sure you want me to answer that? <laughs> Oh, this sounds juicy. What's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, we're excited about a couple of things. Aside from, you know, there's some exhibitions that were uh, sort of bubbling. But, you know, we're excited about the the new artists that have uh, come on board to to rent the studios. Because we, we recently made a shift in a little bit of our, our structure because of the volatility of Miami real estate and all the challenges that we're facing in this rapidly growing city. And so, you know, we, we, we have opened up more studios in our building and we've made some shifts to the galleries. Unfortunately, the, studi the studios became more expensive, which was something that we didn't want to do and that I that I held off as much as possible, but Francis was like shaking me, telling me that we needed to make some changes. Oh, um, is that and, what you were referring uh, to, Francis? When you said, "Are you sure you want me to answer this?" <laughs> um, um, but well, <laughs> oh, go ahead, no, this is this is fascinating because you really—it's about running a business and yeah. market demands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, but no. you know, we 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 had to tell. Go ahead, Francis. I'm just I'm just going to say that. You know, we we had told a lot of artists that were that that were coming through Dimensions Variable. We we said, hey, you know, uh, the payment that you're paying is only for utilities. You know, these studios are this way because this is how we believe they should be. But you you know, we can only do this as long as we can keep them, as long as we can raise the funds to do this. And we were, you know, hoping that collectively we could all uh, work 
our networks to be able to do that. But unfortunately, Miami is has been growing rapidly and it's just been, you know, kind of intense. But uh, Francis, you were going to add to that? No, I think you, you pretty much summed it up. I mean, we've been... But it sounds like it was a difficult conversation because in a way you did have to adjust your guiding ethos a little bit because of the market, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. had to, you know, make another one of those decisions of we have to adapt to a market and, and, you know, the, the building owner has certain things that he needs to, to take care of. And I do my best to mitigate that. Uh, but we need to be able to, like Francis said so eloquently, uh, we have to be a business that has the funding to continue to do what our mission needs us to do. Uh, but but even our yeah. funders, even, even our funders, whether it's the county, the state, uh, federal or, or foundations, if they don't see that you're making uh, other revenue, mm -hmm. they're going to not feel very comfortable in continuing to fund you. Hmm. So we've learned all these lessons because we were thinking, well, out of the virtue of our, of our program, uh, we're going to get funding because it's important, the work that we're doing. Well, not so much. Hmm. Yeah, they've created a little bit of a catch-22 for you, right? And other mm -hmm. nonprofits. Would it ever be feasible in your planning to own your own building? Uh, that's been on the table for a while now. Hmm. Yeah, we've we've looked to that and, and we would love that. And it would help. I, it would help tremendously, but um, it's complicated. I mean, yeah, that was a conversation that we were or we wanted to have with one of our biggest supporters, the Knight Foundation, we were really thinking, looking at the numbers and saying, you know, I know you guys want to support, you know, us being around and you want to support us being successful. Uh, the ultimate way that we could do that is if we bought a building and technically rent controlled ourselves for the next 30 years. Um, but for some reason, you never hear about funders funding you don't. building uh, you don't. purchases, and and it's beyond us the amount of money that's just being thrown out the window, hmm. and and arts organizations are not being given. What the do you power think that is? That they, I'm not sure. And, and we have two examples in the city of Miami that are the most incredible examples of what happens when uh, an organization buys real estate. One of those examples is Ulite Arts, formerly known as uh, Art Center South Florida. And in the 1980s, they bought two buildings on Lincoln Road, turned them into studios, did their thing for the next 30 years. Uh, not too long ago, they sold one of them and instantly became the institution in South Florida with the greatest endowment. That's one example. The other example is uh, Bakehouse, uh, which has uh, been around again since the 80s. And they have now, I don't know how many studios. They're one of the biggest studio providers in South Florida. But they own their building and they're able to do all kinds of different things. But one of those things is that they're not getting priced out. 
in terms of uh, you know rent for their buildings. So we've had this conversation with Michael Spring, who is now gone, but was the director of uh, Miami Dade Art in Public Places. And and I, you know when we asked him, you know, why aren't there you know more grants like this? And he said that they're having those conversations, but at the county and state level, it, they're really long conversations to have. But I, but it's beyond Francis and myself that since the 80s, there hasn't been a conversation about that. Dear listener, do you know why funders don't donate real estate to their favorite arts nonprofits? Organizations are scrambling to sharp their endowments with all sorts of assets, but as my guest pointed out, a real estate donation not only serves as a rapidly appreciating endowment of sorts, but also allows the organization to rent control itself to manage its own expenses. Hmm. If you have any thoughts on this issue, you can find me on Instagram at PC Talenti. Would you like to hear more from artists about how they manage their businesses? Let me know. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening.